that we would just carry this with us and that the world would see a difference and want to know who you are. Lord, we love you and we praise these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Thank you so much, worship team. You can please be seated. And as you're doing that, let's get out your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew. As we start our Easter series, uh, we'll be in Matthew this week and next week. There's a old movie, it's hard to believe it's old already, called Rain Man. Many of you have probably seen it. It won the, a lot of Oscars and won the award for Best Picture, and it stars uh, Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise as brothers. Of course, they look exactly like brothers, right? And you probably know the plot of the movie. Dustin Hoffman, he plays uh, this guy named Raymond Babbitt, and he's a mentally, mentally challenged guy, and Tom Cruise is his brother, and so Tom Cruise decides to take his brother to Las Vegas. What could go wrong? And there's this scene in the movie where Raymond Babbitt has his first kiss. And right after the kiss, the woman looks at him and, and says, how did it feel? And Raymond Babbitt says, wet, felt wet. I <laughs> probably wonder, what does that have to do with anything? Well, I thought we were going to study the Bible today. Well, we'll get there. But first, I want you to think about your first kiss. If right after that, someone had asked you, hey, how'd it feel? You'd have said, well, the, the heavens split open, the world spun around, angels sang, my life flashed before my eyes, right? Well, the way Raymond Babbitt described it, I guess, was perfectly accurate. He understood the mechanics of a kiss. But his response showed he didn't understand the point of it. It showed that that kiss had not had its intended effect. See, a, a kiss is supposed to affect us deep in our heart, deep in our soul. It's supposed to communicate love and, and affection. Didn't happen with Raymond. This week we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. We're looking at it's chapter 26. It's a series of events leading up to the crucifixion. And one of the things Jesus does right before he goes to the cross, one of the last things he does is institute the Lord's Supper. And then he told the church, I want you to repeat this over and over and over and over again for all time until I come back. Y'all, he didn't say that about a lot of the things, probably most of the things we do around here. He didn't say that about our programs or our potlucks or any of that. He said it about the Lord's Supper. And so it must be important. Unfortunately, though, over time, and this is normal, this is human nature, I think many of us, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, we're a lot like our friend Raymond Babbitt. You know, we drink the comically small cup of juice, take the little square that I, I guess is bread, go through the motions, do what we've always done, and then when it's all said and done, we'd say, oh, the, the juice just tasted wet. But it hasn't had it, it doesn't have its intended effects deep down in our heart and in our soul. See, the Lord's Supper, it's a sacrament. Now, a sacrament is like an iceberg. There's a part above the surface. There's a part you can see, but there's a part below the surface, the part you can't see. And y'all, the part below the surface is a way bigger deal than the part above the surface. And so in that sense, it's like a kiss. It's supposed to move us. It's supposed to rock our world. It's supposed to make our hearts leap at what Jesus has done for us. It's supposed to cause us to worship. And so we're going to take a look at that first Lord's Supper. Here's what we're going to find out. 
This is our big idea today. The Lord's Supper, number one, is a meal of grace. Number two, it is a meal of deliverance. And number three, is that it is a meal of expectation. It's a meal of grace, a meal of deliverance, and a meal of expectation. Let's start reading, starting in verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So verse 17 opens with the disciples kind of in a panic because it's the day before the Passover meal. And y'all, the Passover meal was a big honking deal back then. As many as 2 million new people would descend into the city, into Jerusalem for the Passover meal. And now the Passover meal you had to celebrate with a minimum of 10 other people. So all those people, the normal residents of the city, plus 2 million, each had to find a room big enough to fit them and none of their other friends. And here we are the day before, and they have no idea where they're going to do it. And so picture, it's like being Christmas Eve night. No one's gotten the lights out. The stockings are still in the attic. No one's done their Christmas shopping. You just know you're going to end up eating Christmas dinner at some like truck stop drive-in. That's the disciples at that point. But the text in a lot of subtle ways shows us Jesus is not in a panic. Jesus is not worried about it. In fact, Jesus is in complete control. He tells them, go find a certain man. He's using a colloquial language. A literal translation would be, find such and such and such man. Go find Mr. So-and-so. He'll be there. And so Jesus is showing them, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to, there'll be a man. Trust me, it'll all be fine. I'm in control. But he's doing it in a way that conceals his exact plans from his disciples. And that's for a couple reasons. Number one, he's showing them, I don't need your help for this. I got this. Number two, I think, he doesn't want his disciples to try to stop what's about to happen. Early in their chapter, again, he had just told them, listen, I'm going into Jerusalem and I will die. This is going to happen. And they were in denial. They didn't understand. But I think maybe now they're starting to pick up the pieces, okay? It's starting to all compute. But I think at worst, at worst, they thought the Romans will try to get them. The Romans will try something. What they don't see coming and what Jesus is concealing from them right now is the betrayal of a friend, is that it would be one of them. Let's pick it back up in verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. They began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He says to him, You have said so. So now in verse 20, they're sitting down at this Passover meal and Jesus breaks the news. One of you is going to betray me. But isn't the disciples' reaction kind of odd? Isn't it weird and not what you would expect? I mean, I would expect them to all say, no way, never going to happen, not me. 
it says each and every one of all of them said, not me, right? Right? It's kind of like they all denied it, but they all had some doubt about themselves too. You know, we have this picture with the disciples, like it's 11 angels, 11 guys that just glow in the dark and levitate because they're perfect. And then there's Judas, this one guy over there with his pitchfork and his horns and his beady little eyes. And everyone knows he's the bad guy, okay? Everyone knows he's always stealing money and clearly the bad guy. That's that's not the picture we get here. Y'all, if that was the case, as soon as Jesus said that, every one of them would have been like, (coughs) Judas, (coughs) right there, Jesus. That's not what we get. That's not, that's not what happens. The text seems to be saying it could have been any one of them. There wasn't one bad apple. I like the way R.C.H. Linsky said it. He said, each man knows what Jesus says must be fact. But each man knows how weak he is and how ignorantly or in some other way he might do something to hurt Jesus. And just in case we think that's not a right assessment of them, fast forward to verse 56. Verse 56, when it all starts going down, Jesus gets arrested. It says, all the disciples fled him. Before you have, most of you have to turn the page in your Bibles. Every one of them is going to abandon the Savior who's dying for them. So we're supposed to notice when we see the scene, we're supposed to notice every one of them is weak. Every one of them has their own agenda. And we're supposed to deduce that if I'd have been sitting at that table, if you'd have been sitting at that table, we'd have all been exactly the same. And Jesus, in verse 23, when he says, it's someone who dips in this dish with me, we don't know exactly if, if he's saying it to everyone, excuse me, <coughs> Or it's possible he just whispers to Judas, excuse me, I'm going to need more water. Tastes good. Uh, We don't know exactly how this plays out, but what they would have had is one communal cup. They would have all dipped their bread in. It'd kind of be like my whole family would go eat at La Hacienda. We got the one salsa bowl there. And all of a sudden I say, it's somebody who's dipping their chips in this salsa bowl is going to kill me. Now, that would be abnormal for my family gatherings. I don't know if that's normal for yours, but that would erase some eyebrows. And so I think there what he's saying is, no, no, it is one of you. But then in verse 25, he identifies Judas. And I think this was kind of off to the side, so maybe not everyone heard this, but maybe. Regardless, y'all imagine the drama in that room, right in that moment. Everyone knows Jesus is about to die. Everyone knows it's one of them. And now Jesus knows it's Judas. And Judas knows that Jesus knows it's him. What would you expect to come next? If you were sitting there with your family, La Hacienda, and that came out, what what would come next? I would think Jesus would say, how dare you, you scumbag, after all I've done for you, after all I've invested in you, after all the time I've spent with you, and you're going to do this to me? That's not what we get. You know what Jesus does next? He gives thanks. He gives thanks. 
He sits at this table looking at one man who's going to betray him and 11 other men who are going to flee from him, and he gives thanks for the opportunity to die for them. That's why we say this is a meal of grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. And there these men sit at the table, and all of us sit at this table the same way, with none of the merit, no merit whatsoever. We would all run for our lives, yet all of God's favor. Enough favor that he is going to lay down his life for us. This is what Paul meant when he wrote in Romans 5 eight, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. That's grace. So the Lord's Supper, it's a meal of grace. No one who receives it deserves it. But it's also a meal of deliverance. Everyone who receives it needs it. Let's pick up the passage. Verse 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So again, they're, they're doing something they've done since they were born. They are having the Passover meal. So it's already packed with meaning for them. So the Passover meal was a celebration of the Passover back in Exodus. And many of you probably know the story. The people are enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God's going to set them free. And here comes the 10th plague, the last plague, the plague of death. Death was coming that night. Everyone knew it. But there was one way you could escape death. Substitution. An innocent lamb could be your substitute and take that death for you. And so you could put the blood of that innocent lamb on your doorpost. And that night, death would pass over your house. And so that night in Egypt, every house without exception, there would either be the death of a son or the death of a substitute. And this Passover meal where they, they celebrated this great event, it had a script. So this is not just people sitting around, shooting the breeze, doing whatever they want to do. There's a very regimented script. You eat this, then you drink this, then you recite this. Everyone says this, okay? This is all regimented, and they all had it memorized. But Jesus surprised them. Jesus, at certain key moments, he's going to change the script. He's going to totally change it from what they were used to. And when he's doing this, he's doing this very intentionally to teach us something. And it's easy to think, oh, you know, Jesus, he's such a great teacher. He's using something they already knew and just kind of repurposing it, reusing it for himself. Not quite. Not quite. What he's doing here, it's kind of like if you've ever seen a movie with a big cliffhanger, so like The Sixth Sense or something. Um, so spoiler alert, I guess. You've had a lot of time to watch it now, so I don't feel bad. <laughs> Where you think you understand what's happening and then at the very end, you get some new piece of information. And that new piece of information, only with that can you really understand what was happening all along, what it all really meant. That's what Jesus is doing when he changes the script. He's saying, this, this is the key piece of information to help you understand what it's always been about, what was happening all along. He's saying it has always been about me this Passover. So verse 26, he takes... This bread, he said, this bread is my body. Okay, he's changing the script here. He would have been holding the bread of affliction. And this bread, they did every year to remind them of the suffering of their slavery, how bad it was. 
Because, you know, they were the same as us. It, it is easy to, to forget the bad, how bad the bad times in the past were sometimes. You know, so every, you know, every once in a while somebody will say something like, man, I just wish we could live olden days before technology. You know, yeah, when people lived to the age of 25 and nobody took a bath. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> but we forget those parts, right? And so God would use this to teach them every year. Remember, being in slavery was really bad. It was really terrible. You don't ever want to go back to that. And then Jesus takes the same bread and he says, okay, this bread, this affliction, it's my body. So all that suffering, all that affliction that came with slavery, I'm going to experience it. I'm going to take it on. Not metaphorically, physically, in my body, just like that Passover lamb did. And then verse 7, he takes this cup. Now, there were four cups used in the Passover meal. We think most likely this was the third cup. Those cups all came from promises that God gave in Exodus 6. And the cup of the third promise is redemption, where God says, I will redeem you. So Jesus is saying, okay, something about my death, my body, my blood is going to be your redemption. And then he changes the script. He uses a new phrase. He says, because this is the blood of the new covenant. And as soon as he said those words, new covenant, y'all, they would have <gasps> gasped. Their jaws would have hit the fore. Because the new covenant is an Old Testament concept from the Old Testament prophets. Now, something we have to understand about them is they took covenants really, 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 really seriously. More seriously than you've ever taken any contract in your life. So you sign a contract with ink. They signed a covenant with blood. So you can go read Exodus 24 when they go to ratify the Mosaic covenant. Moses sprinkles blood on all the people. Well, that sounds like fun. <laughs> what they're doing by using blood, they're saying, my blood is on the line if I don't keep this covenant. Now, it's a good thing that they took covenants seriously. But Houston, we have a problem, don't we? And it's not a problem with the covenant. It's a problem with us. We are completely unable to keep God's covenant. And so what becomes apparent, apparent in the old covenant is that the people of God, they may have escaped slavery in Egypt, but they are still enslaved to their sin and they cannot break free of it in order to keep the covenant. And these Old Testament prophets come along and they start talking about something new. They start talking about a new covenant. Jeremiah is one of those. Jeremiah, he called sin Israel's incurable wound. It's that wound that won't heal up. It just keeps festering. It keeps being a problem. And so in Jeremiah 31, though, the prophet says, but God's going to fix it, not with the old covenant, but with a new covenant. And this new covenant, it's not going to make demands that you have no ability to meet anymore. He says what he's going to do is God's going to put his spirit inside of you. He's going to write his words, not on a tablet of stone, but on your hearts. There's an old Sunday school rhyme says, do this or that the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A different word the gospel brings, it bids me fly and it gives me wings. And so this new covenant, it doesn't just tell you to fly, it gives you wings. He said, in this new covenant, everyone's a priest. Everyone can have a personal relationship with God. You don't have to go through an intermediary anymore. And that would have been 
unconscionable to them because we're sinful and God's perfect. How can we be, have a direct relationship with God? Well, Jeremiah says, let me tell you the last thing this new covenant's going to do. Forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins. It will cure that incurable wound. How? How can, this do th- how can this new covenant do that? Because Jesus' death is actually going to accomplish something. It is actually going to do something. Now, it's getting more and more popular to kind of say, you know, Jesus' death, it was, it was just an example for us to follow. So it's like a story to tell to help us understand how selfless and sacrificial we're going to be. Or some people will say it's just the ultimate display of love. It, it was the only way God could show us how much he loves us. Well, y'all, that makes no sense. I mean, it is those things a little bit, but it's so much more than that. I mean, imagine, imagine if, you know, as I do frequently, I was going out on a romantic walk with my wife, you know, and just ooing and aahing and how much I love her and how much I care for her. And I was just, oh, I was, I was just trying to figure out some way that I could let her know how much I love her. And so I just throw myself in front of a bus. Well, y'all, no one's going to say, wow. How romantic. What a great display of love. Everyone will say, wow, what an idiot. That was crazy. That made no sense. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. What? What was finished? What did he accomplish? What did he do? Well, he tells us in verse 28, for the forgiveness of sins. That's what he did. See, death, Jesus' crucifixion, it's not like him jumping in front of a bus to show us how much he loves us. It's much more like this. Several years ago, it's been many years ago now, some forest fires swept through Yellowstone Park. And after the fires had passed through, there was a park ranger walking around surveying the damage, and he looked down and he saw a bird dead on the ground, burnt to a crisp. Of course, he thought, how sad, so many... Animals died in this fire, but then he kind of heard a rustling, and he investigated further, and he found these baby chicks underneath this dead mother bird. And it's clear what had happened. As the fire was rushing through and the heat and death was coming, that mother bird covered up her chicks underneath her and underneath her wings, and that mother bird took the full force of that fire. And by doing that, she saved her chicks. You know, back up a little bit in your Bibles. Matthew 23, Jesus, he's walking through Jerusalem. And he says, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Even then, Jesus knew my death is going to save my children. I'm going to take the full brunt and the full force of death so that they don't have to. Even then, Jesus knew his death was the new covenant. They would be able to offer forgiveness of sins. How? How? God was trying to explain it to us all the way back at the Passover. Substitution. See, when Jesus, men and women, when he is on that cross, he is not up there for him. He was perfect. He's up there for you. He is substituting for you to offer you forgiveness of sins. So the question is, do you... Do you know you need forgiveness of sins this morning? You know, more and more we're doing away with this concept of sin. You know, we like to think everyone means well. Everyone's trying their best. You know, 
We're all doing the best we can. Just some people make mistakes. Some people are misguided. But y'all, that, that turns Jesus into like our guru and our life coach. Here to just give us a few tools, give us a few pointers and help us work a little harder at some strategies. And then, then I'll be a good person and then I'll be the best version of myself. But first John says, when we do that, when we try to claim we, were th- we are without sin, y'all, we are lying to ourselves. We're like this guy I read about in Nebraska recently that he was pulled over for some minor traffic violation. He ended up getting arrested because they found a large amount of le- illegal marijuana in his car. And you know how they found it? They weren't looking for it, but you know how they found it? It was in a large container with the label, not weed. <laughs> okay, so... Pro tip, if you label a container, not weed, everyone knows that's where the weed is, okay? You're not fooling anybody. Y'all, we're the same way. We're the same way when we think we're, we don't have sin and we're not sinful. We're not fooling anybody. But you know, we do this thing. We can't, no one can deny the brokenness in the world and the injustice in the world. So all we do is we just pass the blame. And we love to blame God or politics or education or, or some institution for the evil in the world. But you know what we are very rarely willing to do? Is sharing the blame. And just raise our right hand and say, hey, I'm part of the problem here. The other thing we do is kind of this nonsensical game of comparison. You know, well, I've never murdered anyone as if that makes our pride not pride, or our lies not lies, or our hate not hate. You know, Jesus dealt with this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, if, if you hate, you're just as guilty as the murderer. And here's what Jesus is saying in that, in that sermon. He's saying, listen, all kind of things could have restrained you from murdering. Could have been a fear of consequences. Could have been just laziness. Seems like a lot of work. But understand this, your hate and the other man's murder come from the same place. They flow from the same fountain, the sinful human heart. You know, one time Jesus, he told the Pharisees, hey, if you were willing to admit you were blind, I could heal you. And they all huff and puff, oh, how can you say we're blind? We, can, we have 20-20 vision, I don't need her. And Jesus says, okay. But if you ever find out different, just come to me and I can help you. Men and women, if you are willing to admit that you need forgiveness, that you are sinful, Jesus says, I can forgive you. My body will be broken. My blood will be shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And I'll remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. So this is a meal of grace. This is a meal of deliverance. But perhaps what is most astonishing, what surprised the disciples the most, is that this is a meal that is not yet finished. It is a meal of expectation. Let's read verse 29. It says, I tell you, I will not drink again from this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So remember, we said there's four cups. They drink four cups in the Passover meal. Jesus drank the third but he never drank the fourth. At least he hasn't yet. He didn't finish the meal. Instead, he said, hey, guys, we're going to stop right here. We're going to hit the pause button, and we're going to pick this up later. One day, 
when we are all in my kingdom. We will finish this meal together and we will be at this table and we will drink from that fourth cup. See, he's trying to tell his disciples, my death is coming, but it's not final. One day Jesus will be at this table again and we will all be with him. But you know what? This time we're going to be in his kingdom. This time there's not going to be a betrayer or a bunch of people who are going to flee from him at the table. This time there's not going to be any sin. In fact, there will be no more death. John gives us just a little glimpse into the future on this. Revelation 21, verse 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older, the old order of things has passed away. You know what that fourth cup, the promise of that fourth cup from Exodus 6 is? I will gather you to be my people into the promised land. That's what God's always been doing. We, we studied Joshua. We saw it over and over again. What God has always been doing is making a place where he can dwell with his people. And that is the end of this new covenant. That's why this is a meal of expectation. Because every time we partake of it, we proclaim Jesus isn't done yet. That fourth cup, it's coming. This Lord's Supper, it's a meal of grace, deliverance, expectation. But there's one more thing. One more thing. Like any meal, it must be consumed. Men and women, you know no meal can nourish you as long as it just sits on the table. Notice what he says to do. Take it, eat it, drink it. He doesn't even say, hey, just look at it. He doesn't say study it and talk about it or even just admire it. He said, you got to eat it. You got to bring it into yourself. You got to digest it. You got to live off its nourishment. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, to eat is the innermost kind of reception. To eat is the innermost kind of reception. I'm here to tell you, you can... Hear all the sermons you want to hear. You can go to every Bible study under the sun. But until by faith you receive for yourself what Christ has done for you, until you give it the innermost kind of reception, then you'll just come to the the Lord's Supper and you'll be like our old friend Raymond Babbitt. That juice is just going to taste wet and that's all there will be to it. It will not awaken in you a celebration of your salvation. How do you do that? How do you, how do you take it in? By faith, the Bible says. You simply believe. You believe all that Jesus has said about himself, that you are sinful, but that he is God-made man who has died as your substitute, and he will rise again to bring you into his kingdom and gather you and all of his people. If you believe that, you have given it the innermost kind of reception. If you have done that, the Lord's Supper, you, you won't come to it like Raymond Babbitt. You'll, you'll come to it about someone else I heard about. A real-life, true person named Jessica Buchanan. Jessica is a person who knows what it's like to be saved. 
Jessica was, she was just a normal school teacher from Ohio until she started doing some charity work in Somalia. And while she was doing that charity work on October 25th, 2011, she was abducted by Somalian pirates for 93 days. They kept her in the desert, tied up for 93 days without a roof over her head. She lived in deplorable conditions, starved, terrorized, and her health was quickly fading. She was on the verge of death until January 25th, 2012, when some Navy SEALs showed up to set her free. She gave an interview to 60 Minutes where she recounted that moment, that moment of her deliverance. I want you to hear the words of a person who's been saved. Jessica said this, Then all of a sudden, I feel these hands on me, roughly grabbing me. I try to protect myself. I pull the blanket on top of me, and then I hear my name. But it's not a Somali accent. It's an American accent. And I can't compute, like I can't understand what somebody with an American accent knows my name. And they say, Jessica, we're with the American military. We are here to take you home, and you are safe. Pull the blanket down from my face, and all I see is black, black mass, black sky. And all I can say over and over is, you're American? You're, you're American? I don't understand you're American? And I'm still alive. And then one of them picks me up, and we start running. He runs for several minutes, and he puts me on the ground. And I'm still asking who these Americans are. I don't understand who they are. I don't understand what they've done. And then they identify themselves. And if they knew I was very sick, they have medicine, they have water, they have food, and they have come to take me home. And they're so kind and so gentle. They're trying to assist me in getting into this helicopter, and I throw myself onto that helicopter. I push myself up against the wall, and I don't start breathing until we actually lift up, lift up off the ground. And then they hand me an American flag that's folded, and I just started to cry. At that point in time, I've never in my life, been so proud and so very happy to be an American. Now, I want you to think about, think about what happens inside of Jessica every time she sees an American flag now. Every time she sees a flag, just like the one those Navy SEALs handed to her in that helicopter the day they saved her. I guarantee you, she sees more than just some red, white, and blue fabric. I promise, it's, it stirs in her joy and gratitude in the depths of her soul because she remembers, she remembers how she was once a slave and somebody else set her free. So it is when we take the Lord's Supper. When Christians take the Lord's Supper, listen, it's not just some boring, repetitive ceremony. We are celebrating our deliverance. We remember the unmerited grace and love of Jesus Christ. We are moved to worship because his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So let's celebrate this morning, shall we? I'm going to ask the men who are serving communion to come up with me.